Hi, this is Martin Fisher with the Southern Fried Security Podcast. I don't normally go out for drinks with other podcasters after work and watch people's organs get harvested, but when I do, it's with the guys from Defensive Security. So, guys, if you see my wife, tell her I love her. How many nation states are you spying for, asshole? Sorry, I said that wrong. How many nation states are you spying for, asshole? All right, so you wanna you wanna do a podcast in your weekend sickened state? Well, it's not what I want to do; it's what I have to do. All right, here we go. Today is November twenty fourth, two thousand fourteen. And this is episode 94 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry, and I apologize in advance if my voice breaks a little. I caught Ebola or swine flu or both or something from my girlfriend, so I'm a little under the weather tonight. Well, I mean, if you got to catch it from someone, well, whatever. Yeah, well, the rough part was she'd been sick for like two weeks, and I was like, yeah, I missed it. Great. And she was finally getting better. And just as she was like on the upswing and almost over it is when I somehow caught it. So, But at least she's better now to take care of you. So That's true. So That's there's true. that. That's a good point. So, uh, anyway, sir, I am uh, I'm great. I uh, actually, uh, you know, for those following the trials and tribulations of my hand, I actually went and uh, lifted weights in PT. So that was awesome. It didn't fall off. Did not fall off. Excellent. <laughs> they, they uh, although everybody had their their uh, cell phone cams out just in case. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, we should probably do news now. I'm thinking. Yeah, we've already wasted enough time, and nobody really cares about us. Nope. They just care about, you know, the totally, news. Totally. And we have news. That's right, we do. We do. So uh, before I do that, though, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not reflect those of our employers, past, present, or future. So, moving into our first story, this one comes from RT, um, and the title is Hacker Sees database from city of detroit demanded eight hundred thousand dollars in bitcoin uh there's really not any good context behind how this actually came to be but it was interesting that detroit which is a city who is going through bankruptcy uh, was socked with a uh, i don't think they actually say which variant uh, they were hit with but some kind of ransomware encrypted a database but apparently the database wasn't actually needed. I'm guessing because they got rid of that department or, or something. Yeah. yeah, that database covered city services that just weren't going to be provided anymore. Yeah, we got rid of the police. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. So, um, so yeah, they didn't pay. They didn't pay for uh, the ransom, which was two thousand bitcoins. Uh, although, interestingly, we don't have that story in here. I did read in the past week there was a sheriff department here in the U.S. somewhere that did, in fact, end up paying uh, some Bitcoins to retrieve their encrypted case files, which I think is uh, the, the third or fourth time I remember hearing about that in the past two years. So it is, uh, you know, it is quite a thing, and I think it's a good reminder that you got to have a good backup plan. Yeah, I was actually really entertained too by, I'm quoting here, so 
<laughs> the mayor of this particular city, right? Quote, it was pretty disturbing what I found, end quote, the mayor said, with respect to the type of technology the city currently relies on. Quote, I found the Microsoft Office system we had was about 10 years old and couldn't sync the calendar to my phone, end quote. That's what you're concerned about, sir. <laughs> It's the ability to sync the calendar to your phone. That's how you me- measure state of technology. Well, but, but but in defense, right? In in his defense, that is the perception, right? That's how that's how people interface with technology. That's that's the face of it. So that's some fine leadership right there. The yeah. other thing that we've talked about before is the economics of what the ransom asked for is, and I'm. You know, 803000 I think, is really excessive. And, you know, typically when we see an individual or a small company or whatever, it's like 500 bucks, which is something that most folks can go, eh, all right, fine, here, 500 bucks, right? You go to 800000 you're going to make everybody go, mm, let's find any other thing we can possibly do. Yeah, and, and it, that's a really good point. And actually something that has me wondering if this was not – necessarily targeted right but in in some way tailored to that organization because i've never heard of a uh, a ransomware attack looking for 2000 bitcoins maybe it was a, a typo maybe they meant two <laughs> could be i mean it's detroit what were they expecting i i don't know i don't know maybe they thought it was in france or something <laughs> i don't know i the know. other thing I found highly entertaining, by the way, um, was uh, that, <laughs> also quoting from the article, unfortunately for the city, city attacks aren't isolated either. The Michigan state government suffers around 500,000 computer attacks every day. Wow. That's a lot of attacks. What What are those, firewall drops? I, I, I can only assume it's paint, you know... <laughs> Port scans and spam <laughs> spam emails. <laughs> Just oh, it hurts the brain. I, it would be better if they sort of acquitted it to we investigate X number of incidents per you know time value. Yeah, but if it was like four, everybody'd be like, oh, whatever. <sighs> That's why they show oh. five hundred thousand because they probably don't investigate any. <laughs> Well, they gotta justify that budget, right? That's right. So, uh, did, you just, did you just pick the story because we're we're originally from the Detroit area and you wanted to pick on Detroit? Absolutely. Alrighty. Absolutely. I and I and I thought it was interesting to see somebody crypto lacquered without a backup and not paying the ransom. Yeah, they. I guess they chose the wrong database. Just pure luck on that one. Yeah. Yep. All right, so our next story comes from Data Breach Today. You know, one oh. last thought on that, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Why do they only grab one database, right? I, I'm wondering, like, how did that work out? Was that the only box they broke? I mean, why wouldn't they have gone for more? Well, I, I did wonder a little bit about that in the, you know, the, the, the progression or the procession of most of these crypto locker attacks is, or, you know, crypto locker style attacks is, they originate on your, you know, on your workstation. You open a, you know, you you open a uh, funnycast.exe or install a codec or or whatever, and uh, and it encrypts whatever is accessible to it. So my guess is that it happened on the the workstation of some city employee who had 
you know, a mapped drive or maybe that database was on their computer. I don't know. I I highly doubt it was, you know, somebody actually having a presence on their network. But I could be wrong. Fair enough. Could be wrong. All right, so again, moving on to our next story it comes from Data Breach today. The title is FDIC, What to Expect in New Guidance. So, uh, you know, I, I've, I've often said that the banking industry, I think, is one of the more mature areas of, uh, dare I say it, cybersecurity. Um, you know, they there, there aren't an incredible number of successful attacks on banks. You know, there's some notable ones for sure, like J.P. Morgan. Um, but, you know, the, the question becomes, you know, it, are those attacks on parts of their businesses that are regulated and whatnot? Because, you know, generally, even a, even a bank isn't necessarily monolithic. There can be different parts. And kind of like with PCI, a lot of times they'll try to segregate them into different areas and focus regulation on one particular area. But any it, that's neither here nor there. Um, this is this story is about the FDIC continuing to crank down on regulation, and I think this is a, 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 in my mind, a good benchmark to take a look at. I'm not saying that we should you know, run out and, and and embrace what the FDIC um, is pushing here, but it's a good thing to take a look at because you know they are kind of out out there in sometimes in the front. So their uh, their new guidance. Uh, it is going to address, and by the way, the, the guidance isn't out yet, and nobody really knows for sure when it's going to be released. Uh, but they are saying there are five key areas that are going to be addressed. And the first is a risk management and oversight, which is um, you know, includes C-level employee risk awareness of emerging cyber threats. So think security awareness training, threat intelligence and information sharing. I want to circle back on that one. Yeah, I do too. Uh, cybersecurity controls such as network intrusion detection systems, dependency management of third-party service providers. We've seen that be a problem a couple times this year. And then management resilience, which includes disaster recovery and business continuity planning in the wake of a cyber incident. So you know, that's kind of the meat of it there. The, uh, the article goes on and talks a little bit about you know what will regulators do uh, in the face of you know major vulnerabilities and threats like shell shock and in the past the FFIC and, and its constituent organizations like the FFIC have put out a press state you know a statement that says hey you really ought to go do something about that but in my experience those tend to lag a couple days sometimes so i think the point here is that they're trying to figure out you know what? What do they want to be when they grow up in this in this space? So, anyhow, go ahead and and uh, say what you wanted to say about threat intelligence. I, I want to be careful with this because I, I just have a little bit of trouble buying into right now that threat intelligence is incredibly effective at the moment. It, it really feels like I was thinking about this earlier, and I was thinking about. You know, dig, if you will, the picture. There's a guy who's madly in love with some girl. And he's convinced that that girl is his soulmate, and she must be the one. And she's not really interested back, right? But she tolerates him. 
but he keeps convincing himself over and over again to come back to this girl because she must be the one. She must be for him. And I feel that's going on with threat intelligence and info, info sharing right now. We are just convinced that somehow this must work. And in the evidence that is scant, that it is working, we keep thinking, well, we just keep coming back to threat intelligence because, you know, it just seems like it's just supposed to work. It just must work. It feels uh, so right. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't see it being effectively leveraged right now. And that could be because we're in a bit of an infancy with threat intelligence. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to talk about something later. Uh, one of the other stories uh, with, um, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but the new Regan region, uh, you know, malware that was found and all oh, the, from Luxembourg. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And all the indicators are compromised, right. And how that's going to feed into threat intelligence and go out in the world. And, um, you know, I, I can see it, it just threat intelligence to me just feels a lot like antivirus stat files, right? You're waiting for somebody else to, to get caught by this, for somebody to find it, for somebody to tear it apart, take it out of the base, indicate our compromises, IP addresses, whatever it is that you got in your threat intel feed, send it out to that threat intel feed, you suck it in, and then somehow magic happens. Um, so I don't know. I just... It seems like something that we're jumping on, and I'm not sure how effective it is yet. And I hope I'm wrong. I really hope it is working well for companies, but I've not seen it yet. So let me let me tell you. I'll tell you a couple of things. So so first off, uh, we we talked I think last week or the week before about J.P. Morgan, uh, and you know they J.P. Morgan ended up hacked and they lost a lot of data, and in the end, it turned out that the the attack proceeded through a third-party um, corporate challenge site that they that JP Morgan you know sponsored and the way that JP Morgan ultimately came to understand that they were themselves compromised was by looking for the indicators of compromise in the you know in, in that that corporate uh, corporate challenge site. And so, you know, basically they said, oh, you know, we see, uh, we see CNC traffic. I, I assume this is how it happened, right? We see CNC traffic to uh, this, these few IP addresses. Let's go look on our firewall logs and see, you know, what do we see? And, and, oh, Viola, we see we've got some, we've got the same kind of traffic and that spawns more forensic activity. You know, look, we're, we're owned too. We didn't realize it. And I think that's, Probably where a lot of um, where a lot of the value, or at least some of the value of threat intelligence, is probably going to end up being in uh, in kind of retrospective analysis. So um, I was talking with Bob about this particular issue, and uh, you know he he actually works for a bank service provider, and he was telling me that it's not uncommon for banks. Uh, and the the Federal Reserve or the FFIC or different law enforcement agencies to come forward and say, "Hey, we have, you know, we we saw something in in some bank, right? Uh, and we really think that you need to go and look for these things, you know, and that those things might be, uh, you know, whatever, right? Domains, IPs, who who knows? And you know, let us know what you find." And, uh, and you know, so Bob says that happens a couple, you know, a couple times a year. Uh, but you know, I think that is probably the way it's going to, you know, pr- 
proceed at least for a while. Because I, I think, to your point, in any other in any other respect, it's kind of treating it like antivirus, right? If you're if you're using threat intelligence as a preventive technology, I think it's destined to failure. In my mind, where it's probably going to have the most efficacy is in what I just described. You know, looking at, you know, you, you're, you, you are communicated to by some third party, whether it's a service offering that you subscribe to or a law enforcement agency or, you know, your own internal forensics team. You know, you, you, you intake that stuff and you, ha- you need to have a process to, to, you know, to, to do something with it. You know, are you going to throw it into your sim and go back, look back, you know, 60 days? I think that's, in my mind, that's probably where, um, you know, the, the F- FDIC here is actually pointing is that not that you have to have some, you know, big fancy threat intel service you know, subscription. It's more that, hey, if if we come to you and say, you know, here's some here's some scary, nasty stuff we saw somewhere else, you need to have a process to go and do something with it that's useful. That's Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. And you know, we also have this era of morphing and highly divergent malware and Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I, and I'll tell you. I think I told the story before, right? That that Bob had told me, and he was doing some forensics at a company, and um, you know, they found they found a couple of workstations talking to a known command and control host, and you know, so they took those workstations offline, and they they started doing an analysis. And well, in the meantime, of course, they had blocked they had blocked access to that. They started seeing a whole bunch of other workstations starting to talk to that same command and control host. And so they started taking them off the line and, and then they would give them new, new computers and those new computers would start talking to that command and control host. Well, to cut to the, to cut to the chase, the command and control host, it was in fact a command and control host, but it was also a compromised web server that was serving ads for one of the vampire de, de jour movies and so these people were going to uh you know to some pop culture website that had a banner ad that was making a call out to this this other site that happened to also be a command and control host so you know i think to your point you know garbage in garbage out you have you know I, and i and i certainly do think that over time uh attackers especially the more sophisticated ones are going to adapt to this reality and they're going to figure out how to, you know, how to bypass this. If we become, as an industry, really, really dependent on the concept of indicators of compromise and things like that, they're going to capitalize on that, whether that's for through disinformation or, you know, there's, there's lots of different opportunities. And they may even already be doing it, but I think we just have to be pragmatic about this. Yeah, I agree. You know, anytime you have a highly effective technique, the bad guys are going to evolve to counter it. That'll never stop. Exactly. All right, so moving on to our next story. Um, this comes from Cobalt Strike, and uh, I'm not I'm not including this because I'm a big fan of Cobalt Strike. I'm not saying they're bad either. However, I thought it was an interesting topic. So the the title is adversary simulation becomes a thing. 
And uh, what this article goes, which is a little bit long, goes on to describe is what they call adversary simulation. And they are very careful to delineate that or distinguish that from penetration testing and even from red teaming. And it sounds like a really interesting um, technique. And I would say it's probably more apropos in some of the more mature organizations. Uh, certainly you wouldn't want to do it in a, at least I don't think, in a you know a very immature organization because it would be distracting and probably not, not be terribly useful. Um, however, some of the things I really liked about it uh, is some of the pragmatism around the initial attack. So one of the, you know, one of their, one of the key elements of this is that you are trying to identify and react to the adversary in your systems and in your network. You're not trying to keep them out initially. You, the assumption, the, the starting assumption is that they're already there. Doesn't matter how they got there. You know, because let's let's you know, kind of play it out in your mind, right? If you set up a you set up a really great uh, infosec program today, well, they could have been there for three the last three years. So you just don't you just don't know, and that's so why I, I thought that was a very uh, a very good approach. They have a couple of um, of really good uh, videos from conferences that are related. Uh, let's see what other what other big things. Um, yeah, so I, I think this is something that's really worthwhile. They they do point out that uh, in relation to red teaming, red teaming can also can often be very very expensive. Um, you know, because it is it's a kind of a full on attack, whereas the threat simulation can be relatively inexpensive, uh, depending on how you do it. And the other the other interesting distinction they throw out between red teaming and uh, threat simulation is that on the red teaming, as they as they say it, uh, y- y- the attackers proceed using what they know how to do. So your 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 pen tester, I'm using pen tester and loosely there, right? The the red teamer is getting into your network using techniques they know how to do, whereas uh, the uh, you know, the threat simulation operators they call it are using techniques that they know certain threat actors use. So it's kind of a an interesting thing. I think the only the only downside I see to it, and I I say this quite a lot and I take some heat for it. I, I think there's some peril in getting too focused on particular threat actors. Um, you know, and and their particular capabilities for the same reason that we just talked about, you know, if you think that it's China attacking you, but it's really Russia pretending to be China, you know, you may you may really miss uh, some important uh, elements there. So anyhow, what do you think? Yeah, I really love the concept, and it's something that we've talked about a lot. And one thing that that I saw as something sort of key to this as well is that uh, you're really trying to simulate the behavior of known previous aggression, right? So what did previous known attacks look like? And you're trying to simulate that. And you're trying to throw it against uh, your real world and, and really trying to duplicate and simulate as best you can uh, a real attacker. And it reminded me a little bit of 
you know, if you look at the U.S. military, for instance, the the Air Force has aggressor squadrons that fly uh, dissimilar aircraft and fly in techniques uh, that emulate what a known aggressor state would probably uh, utilize so that they can train our pilots against this is likely what ex-bad guy country pilot is going to fly like, right? So they've seen it before. So reminded me of that a lot. Um, I really like the concept of being able to war game this stuff out and simulate it and then do lessons learned and find out where your holes are, um, see what's being missed. Uh, the, the challenge is here, I think, that whoever's conducting this sort of adversary simulation has to be really, really, really talented. They really got to know what they're doing and, you know, be... You know, a senior, senior pen tester with tons of experience who can actually go well beyond uh, just pen testing into uh, setting up scenarios and executing scenarios. And, you know, you're almost kind of role playing this stuff out um, and, and doing a little sort of simulation, but on production. The other thing that, that, you know, they recommend is using live malware. And uh, I really am cautious about that. They say, well, just make sure that you audit it first. <laughs> I, I I don't hmm. I guess if you can completely audit that code and make sure there's no backdoors and you can't lose control of it I guess that's okay I don't know that I buy that right I, I would be very 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 cautious about using live malware that just seems like something that is just asking for trouble and can come up and bite you in the ass um, but the flip side of that is the bad guys aren't going to hesitate to use live malware that's right right uh, but it's a lot harder for you to defend yourself when you just let it escape and cause bad things, and you're supposed to be a good guy. So, um, I think it's I think it's pretty pretty cool. And you know, from the article as well, it seems that this is sort of an emerging thought process and an emerging technique that isn't fully developed yet, and it's something that we can keep an eye on. But uh, I really like it. The other thing I'll say is that once again, this takes enough slack in your staff that you've got the cycles to go do this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And they've got the cycles to respond to it, uh, which is, again, a big challenge for a lot of companies is to have that much bandwidth available. Right. So I liked it. I thought it was pretty cool. Good, good. I uh, encourage everybody to, to uh, give it a read. You know, of course, at the bottom of the of the article, it is, after all, a company's blog, so they do push their, their product, which apparently is intended to help facilitate these adversary simulations. But uh, anyway, uh, I I really don't have a lot of experience with Cobalt Strike. So our final story for tonight is, of course, uh, the thing called Regan or Regin or however we want to pronounce it. Uh, And this, uh, this is the result of a semantic investigation, apparently. And uh, they are calling it a top-tier espionage tool that enables stealthy surveillance. And it has been, I'll say, cavalierly compared to the likes of Stuxnet and Dooku and Flame and all of those other, you know, quote, highly sophisticated pieces of malware in the past. And apparently this has been out and about since sometime in 2008 and went dark in 2011 and has been seen again since 2013. Um, what's interesting about this is that it's a, multi, it's a multi-step infection process, and you know, so the dropper uh, 
the dropper is unencrypted and it pulls down another piece of code, which I would call an intermediary dropper, which is encrypted, and you need that initial dropper to decrypt it. And then it kind of so it goes. You, the, that, that second piece of code pulls down another piece of encrypted code, it, it, which only it can de- uh, decrypt and, and, and so on. So the problem there is that you have to have the whole spectrum of malware in order to be able to, to analyze the whole the whole thing, which um, really makes it very challenging if you get a system that's you know not not completely um, doesn't have all the components there. So that's you know I've I've seen that be a problem in uh, in forensic analysis of infected systems before. Um, but you know the thing that concerns me a lot here is with Stuxnet and Dooku, and you know <laughs> this is like uh, you know drawing a great roadmap for uh you know for for how to package the next uh, version of crypto locker but you know i i think um the other interesting that's your biggest concern is crypto locker that's it no no no, no. Crim- criminal just just uh you know the garden variety criminals taking these tactics and turning them into you know really easy to use sure toolkits that uh, you know, now we start seeing all sorts of these things, and you know they're they're no longer very sophisticated. So, uh, anyhow, um, the other interesting aspect of this is the the audience of who who actually was targeted that we know of that we know way. of, right? So that's a huge caveat there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so. The, by again, given what's known or what's being reported, forty-eight percent of those found to be infected were private individuals and small businesses. Twenty-eight uh, percent were telecom and backbone providers. Nine percent hospitality. Five percent energy. Five percent airline. Five percent research. Uh, and separately, just before the the show started, we we found an article that is claiming a what I'll say is a tenuous link to the uh, the Belgicom compromise that was attributed to uh, the NSA and GCHQ and uh, apparently somebody familiar with that uh, that whole episode has said that you know this this piece of malware here is what was found or at least uh, partly what was found in uh, in the cleanup at Belgicom, so that you know in in uh, in the the article I read that they were trying to draw a pretty clear linkage between uh, Regger or Regin and the, uh, the 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 NSA and GCHQ. So that's to me seems a little tenuous at this point, but um, you know, hey, somebody wrote it. Yeah, clearly. Uh, you know, the one thing that I have trouble with buying into is. Um, taking any sort of, I guess, conclusion away from who's they found to be compromised. Because one thing it states very clearly is that the infection vector is highly varied and that there was no reproducible vector found at the time of writing. So as again, you know, payload is separated from exploit and ultimately this could have been widely spread or or selectively spread with the idea that it may continue to spread to a certain target. Uh, you know, we saw that a bit with Stuxnet. It kind of got out of control. 
I don't know if that was intentional or not. Uh, you know, some recent findings of Stuxnet showed that it was seeded at five key spots first to, to get into, in theory, uh, Iranian uh, nuclear control facilities. But so, you know, it's tough to know, right? Just because 48% were, were individuals, small businesses, that may or may not have anything to do with the goal of that particular, uh, you know, yeah. payload. Uh, there's a lot to that, that, you know, I, I read through this. I read through the the PDF they published. Uh, I've been doing a little of the research. There's some interesting stuff out there on this, and, and just kind of quickly run down my notes uh, because I don't want to completely dominate. But you know, back to the infection vector. Uh, obviously, they're saying that the infection vector is highly varied. So this again goes to if you're only attacking a vector as your way of stopping malware, like you assume that all malware is going to come from phishing, uh, that's not always a good thought process. You need to keep in mind that these things can come in a whole lot of different ways. And the same family of, of whatever it is can come in through all sorts of different exploits. And then once you get a dropper in there, it doesn't matter how it got there. You, you now can download whatever it is you really want to get into the organization. So, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be careful about focusing too much on the vector. Um, from the beginning, they're assuming this is a nation state or, or they make the, the, the conjecture that it is based on what it appears to be going after. It may or may not be, uh, but I'm not sure why, based on the sophistication, we automatically have to assume it's a nation state. Every yeah, that's a really good point. Every time one of these things comes out, we read something to the effect of, "It's so sophisticated; it would have taken you know nation state level funding and years of development effort." And you know what was what was interesting, and I don't I, you know I, I'm not passing judgment one way or another. But Dave Itell this morning sent out an email on his Daily Dave distribution list. You know, saying, I don't know what all the fuss is about. We sell a product that effectively does the same thing. It's clearly, yeah, it's advanced, but it's clearly not that advanced that it's out of the hands of, uh, you know, out of the out of the reach of non-nation states. And I think that whatever you want to say about uh, Dave Itell and his company, I think that's probably true. And I think that's a really important lesson or this an important point that we should not really lose track of that uh, these these are not necessarily all coming from nation states um, now maybe they are maybe there's things we're, we're not privy to uh, but you know I don't I think just saying that by virtue of its sophistication it's you know the NSA that's that seems kind of ridiculous yeah I would agree I would agree that there's plenty of very well-funded highly motivated criminal organizations that I think could probably have done this, depending on what they're going after, right? So we come back to intent. I, I will say that the feel of this feels like surveillance and espionage type activity, so that may lend itself back to a nation state, but I wouldn't say based on the sophistication of the code that we automatically go there. You know, one thing I was reading too was some of the command and control uh, one of them was ICMP. Payload information could be encoded and embedded in lieu of legitimate ICMP ping data. The string shit is scattered in the packet for data validation. In addition, CRC checks use a seed uh, 31337, which is, uh, in essence, hacker speak for elite. 
Now, those could be misdirections, right? Those could be, you know, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a government-run Intel org, I may throw those in there to make it look like script kitties are involved. Well, not script kitties, but, you know, hackers and, you know, immature juveniles. But at the same time, that could be realistically showing that it was just some random hacker folken who threw this together. So uh, I don't know. Absolutely. And you know what? Something that's, that's bothered me for a long time when I read the the dissection reports about these pieces of malware, and it's not always the state-sponsored ones, but it seems like a lot of times there's a what I would describe as a unrealistic placement of trust on the things that are found within the malware that they're analyzing. Yeah. So things like compile dates. I've never seen any one of those reports question the compile date. And I don't understand why I, that, that, it, that baffles me. If I were, you know, if I were a bad person and I were writing uh, some malware, I'd, change my compiled you know the, the date on my computer to be something else uh, you know Dude, I, you're you're revealing state level secrets <laughs> I know I'm going to jail now you know I'd be uh, I'd be including quotes from uh, you know f- from you know Nordic literature or you know whatever to uh, you know to, to throw to throw people off the trail so I, I, I you know I'm not that smart I'm not that clever I can't not imagine that people are writing malware to this level of sophistication are not also having those thoughts. And that's, uh, that's just my... So a couple other thoughts I had. This could have been out there, in theory, for update years. However, let me be very clear. Symantec has a lot of sketchy information here. And I'm not saying sketchy that it's... They have limited you know, gaps in their knowledge about this, and they admit this readily. They say, we've only seen this, we've seen this, we think there's more out there. They do not have their arms around this entirely. So there's speculation that this has been out since 08, that there was a version 1 that got yanked out of circulation, and a version 2 got pushed out there. Uh, Let's go with the fact that this has been out there for, let's cut the difference and say four years. We missed this for four years? Semantic says they started researching this in the fall of 2013. So they've been working on it for a year before they went public? Now, I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong. I'm saying it took them that long to assemble enough information. So this goes back to yet again, we are failing at detection. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, clearly the answer is that we need more antivirus. Right. Um, you know, the other thing I found interesting was that this was looking for things like flight plans and hotel reservations. Yeah, and and uh, and even um, allegedly, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, it has something to do with scheduling like kidnappings for organ harvesting. Well, yeah, especially in Southeast Asia. That's crazy. Uh, you know, you wake up in the pool of of ice, missing kidney. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But, you know, that's pure just rumor mill. We can't substantiate that at the moment. That's true. So, you know, just take that with a grain of salt. But uh, So, I just find it interesting. And, and I also, I don't know, I don't know, something about this feels a little off still. 
and maybe it's because we have such limited information out of Symantec, but um, I don't know. Do you think this could be just a, a press grab by Symantec? Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of these obviously are... Um, they're clearly intended and spaced out in such a way, you know, I can't, I have a, working at a large company, I have a very, very hard time imagining that, uh, you know, keeping your name out there is not part of it. I mean, think about it. Why would a company like Symantec invest the amount of effort that they want to, you know, in, in, in this analysis? It's to, you know, it's to establish thought leadership, right? So, sure. You know, of course they've got a they've got um, you know motivation uh, there. Whether or not it's you know, I guess the level to which it's uh, selfish or self centered is is you know unknown. But I think Symantec in general is relatively good. There are some others that are a little more dodgy, but um, you know, I don't know. It's it's uh, it is interesting that they did wait a year to report it. There were there were some jokes going on Twitter earlier today about you know responsible disclosure of <laughs> of this report. So, uh, uh, but anyhow, um, it's a, it's an interesting interesting question that I, I certainly don't know the answer to. Yeah, to be continued. It, it's obviously big news. It's you know hell. It ended up on skin and money. They were freaking out over it. It is very much within the realm of possibility and likely that we do have a number of nation-states conducting espionage activities with malware. It makes perfect sense to me. It's a perfect avenue for doing that sort of stuff. Clearly, we suck at detecting it and stopping it. Yep, yep, absolutely. And this is a very, very difficult thing to defend against. And, I've, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past, and... Um, you know, when you are up against more advanced ab- adversaries, it becomes really difficult because they have uh, they've got a plethora of avenues in right, the, the, and you're not necessarily aware of all of them. So one of the you know one one of the I guess bits of innuendo is not really even an assertion, right? But uh, when they were talking about the the propagation mechanism, they were saying that you know it appears like quite possibly one of the computers they analyzed was infected through an unknown vulnerability in Yahoo Instant Messenger. Who uses Yahoo Instant Messenger anymore? Well, I guess one of these people. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, so, so I think that's the, that, that's one of the, the challenges is that, you know, if you have, if you've got an adversary that has capabilities to exploit things that you just can't conceive of being exploited and um even if you think you're doing good good practices it's uh you know it's potentially problematic and it kind of goes back to the point of trying to plan for failure but even that can only go so far because a lot of you know if it is the nsa or gchq right you know and they can't get you to click on the link well you know maybe they'll stop you at the border or you know (laughs) yeah they'll find a way they'll find a way right um you know, the only advice I have is uh, they obviously had a number of, of very clever CNC channels to use. I think that's the only real shot we've got at detection is watching those channels for anomalous behavior, which I'm not saying is simple at all. 
but it's where I'd probably spend my time if I'm trying to counter this. Yeah, or or go for a straight, you know, full whitelisting lockdown on the endpoints, which can be culturally difficult for a lot of organizations. Yeah, and and also, you know, some people will will be happy to point out not 100% effective either, but you know, no, much No, no, you're just you're just raising the bar. Right. right. You're just making it that much. Nothing's 100%. Right. right? Uh, but we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of good enough. Absolutely. So I don't know. It's I just I'm still stunned by the fact if this is that widespread, nobody stumbled upon this ever until Semantic somehow did. That isn't that is an interesting uh, bit of information. Absolutely. So hopefully more info will come out. Yep. So I guess there were two other little uh, bits of developing news today. Uh, Craigslist apparently had their DNS hijacked for quite a long time. I don't know exactly how long. It seemed like it was several hours at least, but that kind of goes back to some problems we've talked about in the past. You know, DNS is a weak spot for a lot of companies. It is, and if you've got long time to live on those records, even when you get a control back, they could be cashed out in the world for a long time. That's right. That's right. It's, you know, it's one it's one spot I think we need to spend more time watching. That's right. And then uh, the other is apparently Sony uh, Sony Motion Pictures was also compromised. Although the details there are, are very sketchy, it sounds like one they had a server compromise, but uh, it sounds like they're they've taken their California network offline. Yeah, this came up on a Reddit post, and you know this is a lot of. Apparently, they they've confirmed they're looking into an IT issue. Is all they've really confirmed. So I'm I'm going to put this in the rumor mill camp at the moment. However, I am entertained because you may or may not remember. Way back in the day when we bought CDs, Sony was trying to combat piracy of their CDs. And one of the ways they did it was they were uh, quietly and without permission installing rootkits on people's boxes when they put the CD in their CD drives to rip the music into whatever music player they were using. And when... Obviously, this is Sony, you know, motion pictures versus Sony proper, uh, you know, Sony entertainment. But when confronted about it, one of the VPs out of Japan said, who cares? Nobody knows what a root kit is anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. I need to go back and find that quote. This was probably 10 years ago. I saw somebody posted a picture of a T-shirt that had that quote on just a little bit ago. I'll have to go back and find it. So, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of poetic justice there, I think. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I think, uh, I think that exhausts our, uh, our abundance of stories for this evening. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, thank you to everyone who is listening. We, we uh, definitely appreciate you spending time with us each week. And uh, as a reminder, if you like what you hear, give us a good rating on iTunes. It you know it gives us some internet points. We can go, you know, I, we can't really spend it anywhere. But hey, it's still internet points. Uh, you can find the show on the internet at www.defensivesecurity.org, where you can find back episodes, the links to our stories, and uh, other stuff like that. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at uh, defensive sec you can find mr kellett on twitter at lurg and you can find me on twitter at malicious link and with that 
we will bid you adieu for another week. Have a great one. And to those in the U.S., happy Thanksgiving. Take care, everyone. See you next week. Bye. So, yeah, that whole thing about the organ harvesting, that was uh, it was actually to get Mr. Callet some free beers from uh, our friend Martin Fisher. We are bad people. We're, we're bad. But, you know, we do silly things for beers. That, so. That's right. It's beer. I mean, what can you do? We're not really that dumb. No. No. I mean, it's beer. And, and you, I mean, you should know that we're not th- that dumb because you listen to our podcast every week. Or, well, can, well, could, well, wait, wait. That, no. It could, it could happen. There could maybe... No, really couldn't. No, probably not. No. Anyway. It sucks having Ebola and the swine flu at the same time. We're big in Togo. We are the biggest IT security podcast in Togo.